Welcome to BibleQuest.org. This is the BibleQuest New York City, New Jersey Philly edition. I'm Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania, which is a western suburb of Philadelphia. And joining me as usual is Joe Works, who is in Fairlawn, New Jersey, just uh, about 15 or 20 minutes west of the George Washington Bridge that crosses over to Manhattan. Good afternoon, Joe. How are you today? Hi, Jeff. I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, glad your voice is uh, back with you. Yeah, I am too. I tell you what, it's uh, it still doesn't feel like to me it's back entirely, but it does feel a lot better and I am I can be heard uh, without sounding like I'm rasping. So that's, that's a great improvement. And uh, so uh, today, if you are joining us through the BibleQuest.org app or the BibleQuest, um, what is it, the BibleQuest.org page, then you can communicate with us by the Q&A tab or the Q&A icon at the bottom of the screen. It may not uh, be visible there unless you point your cursor down there at the bottom of the screen. And then you can send us comments, questions, and we'll try to address them on, on the webcast this afternoon. Or if you are watching this by means of the Facebook page, you can, oh, you know what? And I forgot to post this to my Facebook page. Noah, our webcast engineer, I'm sure will take care of that. Uh, but if you are watching us through the Facebook page, you can send us comments there. And again, we'll try to get to them. Noah will get your comments and questions to us. So, Joe, uh, normally we start with a what you got, Joe, but uh, I got something today, something in the news. You and I were talking about it just a few minutes ago. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear what you have to say about the, that topic. So there are all kinds of things that are popping up in the news these days where there is uh, some court case or some equal employment opportunity case or uh, something where people of faith are, are being opposed by government entities uh, because they believe that marriage is defined by God and that marriage is between a man and a woman uh, because they believe that homosexuality is sin. And I guess before I get into one that I just became aware of just, just today, uh, let me say this. We need to be prepared to serve God, state the truth, say what is right, do so lovingly, but do so with conviction, whether our government respects that or not. And we really, we really can't take it as granted. We can't take it as a given that we're going to have a government that is going to um, treat us fairly or grant us religious freedom. We're going to have to be free in our consciences. Uh, in the first century, people did not have a guarantee that Christians would be treated fairly by the government, did they? Not at all. And uh, in fact, by the way that we respond to some of these situations that come up, maybe if I could just say this, uh, I hope, uh, it may be manifesting we are whether we are more Americans or whether we're more Christians. Exactly the point, exactly where I wanted to go with this. I, I was preaching recently from the book of Ephesians where Paul says in Ephesians 4.17, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. And I made the point, you know, in, in the society that we live in today, we, we could hear Paul saying to us, 
walk no longer as the Americans walk. Afterwards, uh, the next evening, one of the one of the people who had been in attendance came and and had you know she was friendly and all, but she handed me a letter, and in her letter she was taking um, exception to the idea that I would say live no longer as Americans live, and her point was that. At a time when we have these protests and football players kneeling during the national anthem and national anthem and all, we should not in any way disparage America. And she made a statement to the effect, I'm loyal to my God and I'm loyal to America at the same time. And I think that attitude is exactly the attitude that we need to be confronting. And, and we need to be encouraging Christians to understand we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We are not loyal to the United States of America, my country, right or wrong, it's my country. We're going to be submissive to the government under which we live. We're going to respect the laws of the land. We're certainly not going to be traitors or be guilty of treason or anything like that. But our loyalty is singularly to God, to Jesus Christ and, and his kingdom. So I'm glad you said it that way. Well, it, it's not actually my statement, I guess, as much as uh, I think of it as Peter's um, uh, in thinking about how when we, if we do end up suffering, and of course, one of the things we probably ought to not do while we try to be prepared for the future and whatever difficulties may come to Christians and the cause of our of our Lord, uh, maybe not to exaggerate the things that that are happening right now, but to be prepared. What's going on now is so small compared to what the first century Christians. Right, right. Um, we can almost develop an attitude of of this this isn't fair. This is horrible. What's happening to me? And more focused on you shouldn't do this to me than on here's what I need to do. Right. And so I, I've tried to think about people, and you mentioned Paul earlier, and I'm thinking of Peter and, of course, the, the persecutions that he suffered as well. Uh, you know, look at Acts 4 and Acts 5 and, you know, what secular history tells us about his life as well. He makes a statement in 1 Peter three thirteen, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Yeah. Uh, you know, like, well, wait a second. There's a lot of people that can harm you if uh, if you're doing that, and, and it, you would almost think that, that that would not be a Peter statement. There's there's plenty of people, but he goes on and says, "But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. Do not be afraid of their thre- threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear." And then this is your point earlier, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct of Christ may be ashamed. Good. I I think very much we need to think carefully before we scream about our rights or worry about Christians being victims. We should prepare ourselves to think about how the Lord responded to attacks, and we should strive to imitate him in that. Exactly, and so in that vein, the the thrust of the comments that I that we're gonna we're gonna talk about something that's been in the news here. But the thrust of it is not so much uh, how dare they, uh, although it's easy to feel that way. But the 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 point of the comments that I really want people to to 
to see is we we really are living in a country uh, that is part of the world. And when Jesus said, uh, we are not of the world, we're in the world, but we're not of the world, that includes the United States of America. We're not of the United States of America. And that's becoming more and more apparent. And it should become more and more part of our thinking. So the, the case that's in the news, um, there's a family, they happen to be Catholic, according to the news reports, um, who raise apples, organic apples, and they've been selling these apples apparently for some years in a farmer's market run by the city of East Lansing, Michigan. Um, for whatever reason, somebody posted a question to Facebook asking about their views, the views of this family uh, concerning marriage. And maybe there was some history there. I don't know. But the family responded on Facebook stating what they believed, that uh, marriage is between one man and one woman. And so the city of East Lansing, this is the city of East Lansing, it's not a private entity, the city of East Lansing um, told them that they were no longer, they instituted a new policy which would preclude them from being able to participate in the farmer's market. I called the city of East Lansing a few minutes ago, um, got transferred from one person to another. And the, the young women who answered the phone were friendly and they were nice. Um, but they were saying, well, they could not make any comment. They could only refer me to the lawyer's statement, the lawyers for the city of East Lansing. And the city of East Lansing has made a statement. Apparently there was a court ruling last month um, <coughs> favoring the family that and that seems that seems to be what should have been the ruling. I mean, the Constitution as it stands right now does grant religious freedom, and a government organization, above all, is prohibited from precluding somebody or persecuting somebody for their religious views. And so you can't, as the Constitution stands right now, whether it's going to be honored or not, who knows, but as it stands right now, it seems... Uh, on its face to be a given that the city of East Lansing cannot say you can't participate in our farmer's market if you hold certain religious views about marriage. Um, nonetheless, that was the stand the city had taken. Court ruled against the city, and the city is contemplating appealing that, which is interesting. So they seem to be pretty set on this course. So that's the story that's in the news. And so just thinking about the need to take a stand and maybe we will lose a job. Maybe we'll lose opportunities to sell products or uh, we may get fired, um, may find ourselves unwelcome in various circles. I'm just thinking through all of scripture and, and seeing over and over where God's people uh, found themselves in those situations, whether it's the prophets of old who were amongst their own people um, uh, or, or uh, the Christians in the first century um, who faced great difficulties along those lines. comes to mind, you know, as a passage people love to get into because it's got the mark of the beast and all kinds of speculation and all, but there's a very practical upshot from this passage. Revelation chapter 13, verse 16, he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free and the bond that there be given them a mark on their right hand or upon their forehead and that no man should be able to buy or to sell 
save he that has the mark, even the name of the beast or the number of his name. People can get all caught up in speculation as to, as to the identity of the beast or more especially the, uh, the meaning of the number 666 and all of that and miss the point. The point is God's people in the early centuries were having to take a stand and that stand being they're going to do what is right and not bow down to evil, not compromise their faith, even though it might mean there would be some limitations placed on them, severe limitations, so that they couldn't conduct their business, couldn't buy and sell. We're seeing that more and more today in our own society, and our response needs to be the same as the response the Lord urged in the book of Revelation to him that overcometh. I will give a crown of, of life. And, of course, overcoming doesn't mean getting the laws changed, uh, although that would certainly be a thrill to see. Overcoming means doing what is right in the face of persecution. Sure. Uh, and keeping in mind the things that the Lord has told us to do when we are persecuted, uh, things like uh, praying for our enemies and doing good to them, uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and uh, Jesus' response to love your neighbor but hate your enemy. Um, if these people make themselves our enemies, then our response to them ought to be, uh, to, uh, to, to bless them and to pray for them, uh, to, to try to shower them with, with. Yeah, good. Ultimately, we would hope that we could have an impact upon some of these individuals who right now may be opposing righteousness. Um, it's more our, our, our goal to reach those individuals than it is necessarily to change the laws of society or the ways of society. All right. All right. Well, let's. Uh, do we have any comments or questions? Let's just check real quickly. You again can use the Q and A tab at the bottom of the uh, Zoom app, or you can go through the Facebook uh, comments and send your comments and questions to us there. But let's get into something else. Let's talk a little bit today about a religious practice that uh, is very common today. One of the things, Joe, I'm sure you've run into this. You meet somebody, you're studying the Bible with somebody. It's somebody who's religious. He or she has a religious background, considers himself to be a Christian or considers herself to be a Christian. And you start talking about the need to be baptized, and the person says, I've been baptized. And often, what do you find that that baptism to have been? Yeah, they were probably baptized maybe in the Catholic Church. That's often been the case uh, as an infant, as, as, a, as a small child. And so have you had this experience where then you sit down and you go through the Bible with them to see what baptism is in the Bible, and they see what baptism is in the Bible, and yet uh, when you try to, to bring it home and and help them come to the conclusion they need to do what was done in the Bible, they still fall back on, well, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, and yes, that makes sense, but still, I was baptized. Right. <laughs> Have you yeah. had that happen? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Uh, they, they feel like they're sort of in a quandary that, uh, well, they've already done what is called baptism, and so they're not quite sure what to do, how to respond to these passages. And so today, maybe let's take a few minutes and talk about infant baptism and, and see if we can get our hands around, heads around this question. If somebody has been baptized as an infant, have they been baptized into Christ? Have they done that which the Lord requires? Do they yet need to do something that the Lord requires uh, that is called being baptized? So let's talk about 
infant baptism. Where would you like to start, Joe? Well, it would be hard to start in the Bible because we don't <laughs> examples of infant baptism, but maybe a few passages that are, at least in experiences that I've uh, been a part of, passages that people have used to uh, try to validate infant baptism. Um, in particular, uh, Acts 16 seems to be one of the passages that I've heard most, it seems like. Let me, let, me, let me play the part of the person who finds evidence of infant baptism there, and you can, you can take the other role. How's that? Oh, that'll be fine. <laughs> so if you look at, at Acts chapter 16, uh, Philip, uh, Paul comes to Philippi, and uh, there, he and, and Silas, and um, they meet a woman there, and her name is Lydia, and she's a seller of purple, and she listens to what Paul has to say. Verse 15 says, when she was baptized and her household, mm -hmm. she besought us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there, and she constrained us. So Lydia and her household were baptized. So obviously then, it wasn't just a Lydia, it wasn't just adults, but the babies were also baptized. Because we know that Lydia had uh, infants in her house. Um, yes. Wait, wait. How do we know that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's no evidence in this text that uh, there were little children, young children in the house. I think the, the point that's being made is that everyone in her house were responded to uh, the, the teaching that Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, conducted there. Um, well, well, but Joe, Joe, but there's another story here in Acts 16. Philip mm -hmm. and uh, Paul and Silas get arrested, and they're in jail. And, uh, of course, then there's an earthquake, and the jailer's about to kill himself because he figures all the, the prisoners have escaped, and Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas are still there, and they say, do yourself no harm, we're all here. And the man, the jailer, says, what must I do to be saved? And verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized and all his immediately. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them, rejoiced greatly with all his house, having believed in God. So this is not a single man. He's got a household. So obviously then, it's if Lydia didn't convince you, this one should convince you. The babies were included. Yeah, again, no babies are mentioned in the text, are they? And in fact, this one I think is even more helpful. Notice that, yes, the whole family was baptized in verse 33. And in verse 34, the whole family had believed as well. The last part of verse 34 in the New King James, um, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. Ah, okay. Everybody all right. there believed. So if the children, uh, if there were children involved in this, they were of the age to be able to believe what was being taught. Well, what what is it that, I mean, Okay, I get the point. I get the point that if I'm going to prove infant baptism, I can't, I can't just assume there were babies there. But why would you suspect babies are not included in this? I get the point about the believing. Okay, maybe, maybe I would argue that 
everybody who was baptized believed except for the ones who were too young to believe and they were baptized anyway. I mean, okay, I know that's a stretch, but why, why shouldn't I suppose that babies were included in being baptized? Well, the purpose of baptism, I think, is the, the fundamental uh, question. Uh, only people should get baptized who uh, are responding to the need for baptism. Um, no, of any religious group, although somebody could probably point one out uh, fairly quickly, unfortunately. I don't know of any religious group that baptizes uh, dogs and cats in <laughs> household, uh, you know, domestic animals or something like that, or, or maybe even the farm animals that Libby has as well. Uh, you know, no, I, don't, I don't think any reasonable person would draw the conclusion that every living thing in the house ought to be there is a blessing of the animals, you know, in, uh, well, and a blessing of the pets. There, there you know. have been those things, but uh, I think they would make a distinction in the, the baptism part, I hope. Uh, but, you know, one of the reasons why somebody would say, well, that's a silly argument, uh, because those animals don't have a need for, for baptism, um, maybe for a couple of different reasons, but primarily the purpose biblically of baptism is to have our sins washed away Uh, and children, infants simply don't have sin. And and I think that's where the real disconnect comes. It's why people see infants in these passages that don't mention them because they believe that infants actually have sin in their lives. Yeah. Okay. And, and that gets to the idea of, of inherited sin, I guess. Right. So we got a question. Uh, Drew says, do you know if denominations who baptize infants are actually immersing them like they did in the first century? So this gets to the idea that in the Bible, baptism is a burial. It's an immersion, and we need to show that. And then we need to ask this question and answer it if we can. Among the denominations that practice infant baptism, do any of them immerse infants? So I guess, first of all, let's show that baptism is an immersion, that it's a burial. Um, Well, maybe the easiest way to do that, or I don't know if it's easiest or not, but that's simply what the word means. Um, uh, You know, that's without having to get into the Greek and and so forth, uh, long, long discussion of it. That's what the word, the, the definition of the word is. Unfortunately, people will often go to Merriam-Webster's to find that, and that's based upon common uh, practices today, not upon what the word meant. Romans 6, I think, is a passage that I generally use, makes it kind of obvious to show that what it is is a burial. Yeah. Um, and uh, I have yet to go to a burial where people just sprinkled a little bit of dirt over the dead body. Um, they they bury them. Uh, they they put them under. Yeah, take us through that passage, Romans six, starting there. And I don't know where you want to start. If you want to start in verse two or where. Sure. Uh, so Paul's answering the question of whether we can continue sinning after coming into favor with the Lord. And his response is certainly not. Verse 2, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, we should no longer be slaves of sin. So we have this picture of Christ having been crucified, and we die with him. He talks about in verse 6, we're crucified with him. He describes Christ's death in verse 4, uh, excuse me, in verse 5, and we're united in the likeness of his death, and so we also have to be buried, the word that's mentioned in verse 4. And then just as Christ is raised in verse 4, we're also raised. So Paul kind of deals with it in reverse order, verse 4 being raised, verse 5 being buried, uh, likeness of his death, and verse 6 being crucified. Uh, that's, you know, in reverse order, that's what we do. We cruci- we're crucify ourselves to sin, we're buried in baptism, we're raised to walk in a new life with Christ. All right, so that makes sense why God chose this particular act, why there is symbolism here in this act. There is a, an identity with a connection with the death of Jesus, and it's the death of Jesus that takes away our sin, and we emulate that death both in our turning from sin and in the very act of being buried with him through baptism. So there, along with that, when you look at, you've already mentioned the, the word that's used in the New Testament that's translated baptize, or some would say transliterated. It, it did mean to dip, to plunge, to immerse. Modern English uses the word baptize for all sorts of things that are not dipping and immersing and plunging, but we're not concerned with how it's defined today. We're concerned with what the word used in the Bible means, and it meant dip, plunge, immerse. You see, everywhere you read about baptism, you see this idea. uh, For instance, in John chapter 3 and verse 23, John the Baptist was baptizing in Anan near to Salem because there was much water there. If I'm just going to sprinkle a little bit of water, a few drops of water on the foreheads of babies or whomever, I really don't need a lot of water, but he needed to be someplace where there was a lot of water to baptize the people he was baptizing. You have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts the eighth chapter where Philip and the eunuch both went down into the water and he baptized them. They came up out of the water. Um, What's the point of going down into the water? If you're just going to sprinkle a few drops on somebody. Sure. Well, the point is Romans 6 is to be a burial. And so you go, you go down and you dip him, you immerse him, you plunge him. But Joe, okay, so here, here's the question then that, that we've been asked. Are there denominations that baptize infants and don't merely sprinkle them, but do immerse them in water. Are you? Do you know the answer to that question? Uh, I think that there are some who uh, practice immersion. Um, maybe more, uh, and I'm not an authority on this, but uh, Eastern Orthodox. Uh, I was thinking that there were some that uh, practiced Im- bab- infant baptism by immersion. Um, I that, that may be right. I'm not an authority on that either. I think I've been told that. But let's let's just say, what if then? What if there was a there's somebody you're studying the Bible with somebody, 
And he, he says, well, I was baptized as a baby. And you say, well, you see, baptism needs to be a burial, not merely sprinkling. He says, well, I was immersed as a baby. Uh, I was buried. I was put down under the water. So, so then what would you say to that? Uh, I, I guess I, I, would, I would ask why you were baptized. Um, what was the purpose of that baptism? Um, and generally, if they know much about it, they will say uh, that they were being baptized because of uh, inherited sin, uh, because they had received um, Adam's sin when they were born. And so that was the, the way to be purified there. And so then you talk with them and you show them that the Bible does not teach this idea that we inherit Adam's sin. Um, we're not guilty because he sinned. We're guilty because we sin. And so the person you're studying with says, oh, okay, I see that. But that doesn't change the fact that I've been baptized. And so you say, well, but you need to be baptized. Uh, you need to believe and repent and be baptized. You mentioned in Acts 16, the jailer's family, his household, he and they believed and, and were baptized. Right. So, all right. So he says, okay, true. Uh, but he says to you this, he says, but what do, difference does it make in what order I do those things. I was baptized and now I believe and I, and I repent and I want to serve the Lord. So I've done it all. I've believed, I've repented, I've been baptized. What difference does it matter whether I got baptized first or I believed and repented first? Sure. Uh, maybe just let the Bible answer the question of what difference does it make or, um, uh, you know, what do you do with somebody <laughs> baptized, maybe even immersed, but not for the proper reasons or, or maybe not in the proper way also? Uh, Acts 19, I think, was one of the passages that helped me to understand um, the need for a rebaptism. If we understand that, that baptism is, is immersion or dipping, uh, to, be, to be dipped properly, to be dipped the right way, here you have a case where about 12 men had been baptized into John's baptism, Acts 19, 1 through 10. And Paul comes, teaches them. They didn't know about Christ at, like that baby would not have. Um, and uh, so then once they're taught about the Lord and uh, the Holy Spirit, um, then it says in verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there are some people, and that's a really powerful example, because if anybody would have had the right to say, wait, what difference does it make what the order was or what our understanding at the time was, there seems to be some very serious uh, ramifications of that in Paul's mind. They needed to get baptized according to the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Good, good point, good point. Uh, I want to come back to that and add a thought to it. We do have a comment from Warren Berkeley. We were asking if some of the denominations, or we had a, a viewer ask if some of the denominations actually immerse infants, and you mentioned Eastern Orthodox. Warren Berkeley says some Eastern Orthodox groups baptize, immerse infants three times. Right. So, so, <laughs> so the answer is yes, some do. <laughs> Yes. All right. 
Go ahead, and then I'll come back to my thought. <laughs> I was just going to say that, that this passage in, in Acts 19, uh, I think is just a, a very valuable passage to show that if somebody was baptized but not with the proper understanding, then the right thing to do is to go through that process with the proper understanding. And I, the and, passage that really sticks with me is this is exactly what happened in, in my case. Uh, I had been baptized, um, uh, but in a denomination, and uh, then, was it immersion? Uh, yes, in immersion. Okay, uh, all right. As a as a teenager, uh-huh. uh huh. And um, uh, with a Baptist church, um, uh, in order to uh, sort of have full privileges with the church, I needed to uh, to be baptized. It was very clear to in their teaching that my baptism was not for salvation. In fact, we waited for about three months. And me and a couple other people were baptized together. They had a special service um, and started studying with a couple of, of Christians, Dennis Stodgill and Vince Connors from Madison, Indiana. And uh, they began showing me passages uh, like this one and, and others that showed the, the need for baptism, for the remission of sins. And, uh, I went to my Baptist pastor, his pastor John was his name, and uh, I remember going in thinking, well, he's going to solve this for me. He's, you know, yeah. there's this contradiction here, and, and I was really quite content with where I was. Uh, they actually let me play on the softball team there, and so I was quite happy about that. Um, and uh, so I walked in his office and said, I've been studying with these guys, and he was kind of like, oh, that's great. And I said, well, they're showing me some things in the Bible that – seem to contradict what, what we've done here. And uh, so when I talked to him about those passages that describe the, the need for immersion and for the remission of sins, which is kind of touching on this part about infant baptism, and his response to me was, well, Joe, they have their teachings and doctrine, and we have ours. <laughs> and that was it? And that was it. <laughs> and I said, okay, thank you. Uh, that's helpful. And I turned and left his room and never went back Um, uh, because it was just really obvious that he, that there was no defense in the scriptures um, for baptism, for the remission of sins. Oh, wow. You know, this passage here, and then shortly after that, then I was baptized, rebaptized, but baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Yeah. All right. So if you want to join in, if you want to send us your comments or questions, you can do so through the Facebook comment section, or you can do through do so using the Q&A icon in the uh, BibleQuest.org uh, app or at the BibleQuest.org page. Uh, I want to go back to Romans 6. So in connection with this idea, and you've answered it, uh, but this idea, somebody says, well, I was baptized, I was immersed as an infant, and now I believed and repented. And they say, so what difference does it make about the order of things? Um, You've answered it well from Acts 19. I want to go back to Romans 6. And what I want to highlight here is baptism is is intended to be the point at which I go from being um, in my sins to alive in Christ. It's the point at which I die uh, to my sins and become a part of Christ's death. And so I want you to think about a baby. 
And think about what Paul is saying here is supposed to happen in connection with baptism. The idea of living in a, a life of sin, being baptized into Christ's death so that that old life is put to death, and now starting a new life, uh, walking in accordance with the will of God. And if that happens when a baby is immersed. So verse 2, Romans 6, we read this a moment ago, but let's, let's read it again with the baby in mind. We who died to sin, how shall we any longer live therein? Or are you ignorant that all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. He's highlighting the idea of baptism as a transition point. We become connected with the death of Jesus Christ, so we don't live that way anymore, and we now are raised to walk with Christ in newness of life. If there is a baby that has been immersed, can anybody say that that baby was living this life of sin and that baby said, you know what, I want to put that life to death and I am being baptized and I'm going to start a new life raised up out of baptism as Jesus was raised up out of the tomb and begin my new walk. Do you ever know of a baby that was immersed and said, from now on, I am not going to impatiently cry when I get hungry. <laughs> I am going to turn, a new, turn over a new leaf, and I am going to live my life in accordance with this new walk in Christ. <laughs> Most infant baptisms that I have seen, either in video, I guess mainly in videos, uh, the infant was not at all joyful. <laughs> Um, they were not, this was not something that they were uh, making a decision in any way to, to be a part of. And uh, if anything, it, it, it only aggravated them to, to have the water thrown on them or whatever the case. Jacob Wooten has a question for us. He says, what do y'all think they mean when they say to accept Jesus into your heart? Uh, you know, that they don't say that to babies, do they? Good point. But what do they mean, Joe, when they say, when people say, well, you know, they talk about, here's what you need to be. You'll get a little tract. You'll get a little booklet about salvation or something. At the end, it'll say, accept Jesus into your heart. What do they, what do they mean by that? I think generally speaking, they're talking about <coughs> having a relationship with the Lord. Um, they're welcoming Jesus to come into their life. Um, you know, maybe think of it from a, from a romantic vantage point. Uh, I have, uh, uh, Beth is in my heart. Uh, I have a relationship with her. She's somebody that I hold dear to me. And so that's the, the point that they're making is that they want to have a relationship with Christ. And I really appreciate that, uh, desire that they have to, uh, have the Lord come into their heart to, you know, we ought to love the uh, God with all of our heart. And so he should indeed uh, overtake us. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Um, but the, the question is not so much whether we 
accept the Lord into our hearts, but are we doing it in a way that's acceptable to him? Yeah. Um, so, uh, there's a couple of related issues here. We've been talking about infant baptism. Uh, I guess I want to go back and make one more point about that before, you know, the people who say accept Jesus in your heart, usually their view is baptism is not necessary at all, uh, whether it's as an infant or or not. Um, they're usually coming from the, the perspective that so long as uh, I believe in Jesus and and I kind of, your your analogy of of having Beth in your heart is kind of interesting. That's that's kind of I think that's that's kind of an apt analogy. But those people are saying it doesn't baptism is insignificant. It doesn't matter. And maybe that's worth spending some time on. In fact, it it, it is. But we've got just a few minutes left, and I want to go to one more passage. And this is a passage that is sometimes used by those who try to defend infant baptism, and it's Colossians chapter two and verse twelve. Hmm. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12, and uh, the passage says, well, I, I guess we actually need to start back in verse 11. It's not really the beginning of a sentence. We're still starting in the middle of a sentence. But Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 says, in whom you were, in, in whom, of course, in Christ, in whom you also were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, in the putting off of the body of the flesh, in the circumcision of Christ. And I didn't read that with the right inflection. Let me read that again. In whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands in the putting off of the body of the flesh, in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, wherein you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, the point is made here that uh, in that baptism is made to correspond to circumcision, and I will acknowledge there's a certain parallel there. There's a point of initiation into God into the into God's people here, and the point is made: circumcision babies were circumcised on the eighth day, and if baptism corresponds to circumcision, then Babies should be baptized. And that's the argument that's made. You want to make a comment about that? And then I've got some. Uh, No, I think that that is a passage that is fairly commonly used, uh, particularly by those who have really tried to study it out to find a a serious defense of uh, their belief. This seems like a a good uh, parallel in their minds. And so... Uh, we're going to run short of time here, but the point that I want to make is, well, two points real quickly. Similar to what we saw in Romans 6, Paul is is again here talking about being buried with Christ and then raised with him through faith in the working of God. Baptism is that point at which we are buried with Christ and raised through faith in the working of God, our having faith in God's working. So that language again, like in Romans 6, points to what happens at baptism as being a transition point. And, and there's a putting to death of my old man of sin and my beginning a new walk. That doesn't happen for babies. But here's the other point that I want to make. There's a fundamental difference in the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. And that fundamental difference is the Old Testament people of God were defined outwardly so that you could have people 
who had been circumcised, who were part of the covenant people, and did not know the Lord. They were not God's people inwardly. Some were, but many were not, and had to be taught to know the Lord. But the New Testament people of God are defined inwardly. They are people who have believed and repented. Romans 6.16 have become obedient from the heart. And this contrast between a people defined outwardly and a people defined inwardly is highlighted in Jeremiah, the 31st chapter. Jeremiah chapter 31, and I may not go all the way back and start at verse 31. We're running short of time. I may just start in verse 40. After he said, I'm going to make a new covenant, and it's not going to be like the old covenant. He says in verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the, I'm in the wrong passage. I am in the wrong passage. Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, There we go. Uh, Verse 33. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. On their heart I will write it and I will be their God. They shall be my people, and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Under the new covenant, God's people are those who do know God. A baby baptized as an infant doesn't know the Lord. He's like an Israelite in the Old Testament who has to be taught Baptism is something that takes place when somebody from the heart becomes obedient, believes, repents, and knows the Lord. Um, so there's that difference there that, that I think we need to understand. Sure. Well, we're out of time. we got some comments coming in here at the last minute here that we didn't have time to get to today. Maybe we can come back and pick up with some of them next week. That'd be great. All right. Thank you, Joe. Thank you all for watching. And tune in again next week at 3 p.m. on Wednesday afternoon for Bible Quest, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. And thanks to our webcast engineer, Noah Andrews.